What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Live Free Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Maxwell. Today's guest is Mr. Fred Stonehouse. He's uh, I've seen his work uh, ever since I started paying attention to this, the gallery fine art scene. We, we sort of talk about it in the show, but to me, he seems like a real like working class style of artist who um, I believe he's the oldest painter who I've had on the show which I've really been sort of kind of seeking out now. Like I'm 36 and I'm kind of trying to figure out what painters are doing, you know, in the period from their mid thirties into, uh, into their fifties, you know? And so I, I believe uh, Fred's 56 and he's been able to make a career from art for the past 30 years and has um, had a real meaningful career and uh, seems just as, uh, interested in painting today, as um, I imagine he was uh, in his twenties. Um, we also talk about the whole misery of painting. Uh, we we often uh, romanticize the the art form here on the show, which is what it's about, you know. And uh, we we do that on this episode, but we also talk about some of like the the other side of of the game that that doesn't get talked about, I guess. Well, maybe artists are complaining all the time, but. We we get into some of like the misery stuff. It's it's pretty funny. It's a, it, it was weird listening to to Fred. Uh, it was almost as if I could sort of uh, see myself twenty years down the line. How uh, we we have a very similar uh, uh, attitude, and you know it's common amongst artists anyway. But I feel like we are pretty similar types. So it was good to talk to him. Uh, his art is amazing. He has a show coming up. Uh, it'll be. Um, Next Saturday, I believe, this following week uh, in L.A. at the Copland Del Rio Gallery. I think right there in Culver City in the Arts District. We're going to try to make it up for the show if we can. Um, if not, I, I highly recommend everybody in L.A. or around the surrounding areas to go check out the show. His work is super amazing. And uh, you can see like it has a, it has this old and new quality about it and, you know, I think something about his work has been really consistent over the last, you know, 20 years, you know, 15 years or so that I've been uh, seeing it. So stoked to have him on the show. Um, as always, uh, go check out MikeMaxWallart.com, click on the podcast, and you can get all the information about all the other artists. Big thanks to Soho Design House for sponsoring this episode. Uh, we talked about them on the last episode they're doing really cool stuff. Uh, also out of L.A., uh, they should go check out the show. If you go check out the show, go check out their um, their spot over on uh, Melrose Avenue as well. Uh, you can follow them at Soho Design House. It's so their Instagram is at S-O-H-O-D-H. They make uh, all handmade rugs based on paintings and illustrations and uh, designs by contemporary artists. They're really cool. I, I just got a chance to go check out the website uh, again, and they have like a step-by-step process, how they show how the rugs are made, you know, from shearing the sheep to, you know, getting the wool to cleaning the wool to, to preparing it for the loom to, to weaving and all the different steps uh, in the process itself, which, you know, is an art form in and of itself. And it's something that looks really cool. You know, artists, and I talk to people who, who do printing a lot, like, I, I forget, I was talking to somebody recently, uh, like, when you see your stuff printed for the first time, it's it's really amazing. There's something that, that happens in the process of taking a drawing 
going through all the processes and coming out with a stack of posters at the end that's really intriguing. Um, so I, the same process goes for something like this, where you could take one of your paintings or drawings, uh, illustrations, whatever, and turn it into like a big, beautiful rug that's also a piece of art. Um, and, you know, it's, it has functionality as a rug. So um, go check out SohoDesignHouse.com or S-O-H-O-D-H.com. Uh, again, they have a showroom in Melro- on Melrose Avenue at 6912 uh, Melrose Ave. And uh, check out their website and their Instagram to see all the stuff that they're making and uh, things that are available to buy. Tell them the podcast sent you. Um, so thanks to them. Uh, and as always, you know, if you want to sponsor an episode or the podcast or a grouping of uh, podcasts, get in touch. Uh, info at MikeMaxwellArt.com. You can always uh, donate to the podcast as well if you are so inclined. Go to MikeMaxWater.com, click on the podcast, you'll see the iTunes link. You can subscribe, leave comments, rate the show over there on iTunes. There's a PayPal donation link that you can click on if you want to drop a, a 5 or a 10 or a 5,000 or whatever. Um, you could do that. Uh, so I think I babbled enough, got everything out. If you want to go buy some of my junk... You can also go to MikeMaxWater.com, click on the store, and it'll take you over to uh, my store envy, where I'm always posting shit up, or check out my Instagram at MikeMaxwellArt, and I'm always posting new shit up there that's always available for sale. So, all right, sales pitch over. Let's uh, jump right into this thing. Uh, let's talk to Fred Stonehouse. Fred Stonehouse, what's up, my friend? How are you? Good. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Uh, I, first, I want to um, thank you for taking the time to shoot the shit with me. I uh, I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. I um, I've I've seen your work for a long time. It's funny. I was trying to explain to somebody earlier. Like, um, I feel like I I use the terminology journeyman, um, which is like a terminology used for baseball players who uh, like have long careers they have a good career but maybe they aren't like barry bonds or like the like the spotlight guy yeah they've never drawn the tall contract right uh i kind of see your work as that because i've seen it along with everything that i've you know all these you know like uh mark ryden and shepherd ferry and like these types from you know like the early 90s i from my perception um do you feel like that? Do you, do you? Yeah, you know, it's funny you say that because I often wonder, like, what's what's that all about? Like, I've been included in some of these shows. I've been in Juxtapose. I was in the big Juxtapose effect show a few years ago, but it was sort of a minor piece. And I don't know if it's because I'm in Wisconsin, sort of, you know, born and bred and never really left. That uh, And so much of that stuff is kind of West Coast-based, you know, California-based. Or conversely, it's New York or wherever. I mean, even Europe. And I show in all those places, but I don't know if it's the, uh, you know, sort of under the radar uh, kind of career that um, like usually doesn't even happen. But if it's going to happen, part of it's because I I live under the radar in Wisconsin. I mean, maybe that's it. But I do wonder about it. I wonder, uh, I mean, you know, like I've done really well over all these years. I've uh, But it is interesting to think that I'm at least the contemporary of all those guys. If I don't predate them a little bit, my first show, yeah, yeah, my first show in LA was probably 91 or 93 or something like that. So 
way back, you know, it was pretty early on there. And I've been showing um, in the Midwest since the early 80s. So, yeah, journeyman's probably, unfortunately, a good way to describe me. You know, I'm not really like a, you know, utility player. Been around all these years, like, yeah. plugging away. But, you know, yeah, like, he, you know, he moves in from the outfield, you know, uh -huh. like, kind of, like, ends up playing third base if he's lucky or maybe designated hitter at the end, you know. But, yeah, I'm not a left fielder anymore, and, a and center fielder. You know, and I say that not in like a, a negative terminology, like for uh, for somebody like me, like to see that, you know, you're a, a number of generations ahead of me. I'm 36, um, but I've been yeah, painting for 15, yeah. I've been painting for 15 years, like commercially selling it. And so like to see, like, I don't ever perceive myself moving into some of those higher echelons. And I, I wonder if like, I see an actual beauty in the capability to have a long um, meaningful career that, you know, like some of these things become flash in the pan or right. like one hit wonder sometimes. I mean, we don't see that so much in the art world as, as much, but well, I feel like happens, so. we're moving it. I see it, the culture moving into a lot of that. I mean, I think back at a lot of artists who are no longer on the scene a lot. Yeah, me too. Over all these years, I've seen it happen quite often. In fact, I have good friends who, uh, you know, were really at the top of the, the art scene at one point in their career and watch their careers sort of blow up and then, uh, and then just disappear. Like the price, one of the things I think that, well, you know, I don't know. I really don't know why I've been able to sustain a career for all these years. Exactly. Other than the fact that I keep working. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, I mean, there's a lot of reasons, right? Like um, I've never been like the high maintenance guy in any gallery stable, you know, like when they say, can you do a show? I'm like always, yes. I never say no. Even now, I mean, I teach now, so I have a job, but over all the years I was just a working artist in galleries. I never said no to anything. So like, for instance, I still don't say no this year. I have just starting at the beginning of this year, solo show in Milan, solo show in Nashville, solo show coming up in LA next week. A uh, few group shows, one in Paris, one in Edinburgh, Scotland, and one in L.A. again over the summer. Solo show, retrospective at the Museum of Wisconsin Art in September. Solo show in New York in September. Solo show in Chicago in November. Solo show in Milwaukee in October. All because I wouldn't say no. So now I just don't get to sleep until December. Oh, and then another <laughs> big show at the end of November, the beginning of December in Germany. So um do you now do you do you take that stance as a way to push yourself where maybe you wouldn't before uh well you know you work as hard as you have to and yeah. uh, um i think for me like like for instance here's a good example uh a few years back antonio colombo gallery in milan uh, contacted me and said they were interested in work and it just happened to be they wanted me to do a show and i just couldn't i mean i had like a bunch of other shows going on right at the same time so I thought, well, you know, Fred, be sensible here. Let's try to do it so you can do the best possible show, right? So I said, well, I really can't do it now, but I'd love to get on the calendar for next year. Well, you know, then I didn't hear anything. Yeah. Well, three years went by, and I thought, oh, shit, I screwed that one up. That's not going to happen now. You know, like I blew my chance to show there. Yeah. I have friends who show there, and I thought it would have been cool, but I thought I, I wasn't ready. So this time around, uh, I knew I had all these other shows coming up in the fall, and I thought, okay, I'm going to be working towards in the spring and the fall uh, these other shows. I was already working towards them. And then I get a call sort of out of the blue just a few months before the show in Milan saying, hey, Fred, actually what they called and told me was, uh, Fred, we are planning an exhibition of yours for 
uh, February. And I was like, what? Like, with what? <laughs> like, where are you getting this from? And I realized that th for some reason in their mind, I had said yes two years earlier. And so it was just a matter of, you know, like, I don't know, like something lost in translation. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I could have said the same thing. Like, listen, sorry, too much going on. But I thought, no, I don't want the chance to miss the chance again. So I just said, sure. And then again, I just don't sleep. So I just keep working. And when, I, when I'm in that situation where I've got that kind of pressure on me, I think good things happen. Like, you know, work tends to make work and, and more work makes more good work. So, sure, sure. Uh, you know, like, let's face it. It's not like I'm breaking rocks for a living. It just means I have no social life. I don't go on vacation or like my motorcycle. I haven't even started it this year. It's yeah. sitting parked. Uh, so there's certain things I don't do, but, you know, uh, uh, you know, I wouldn't trade the situation on and the fact that at 54, I mean, my career started pretty much right out of college in 1980 at in 24, like in 1984, I had my first solo show in Chicago. And so for 30 years, I've never had a year where I didn't do a solo show. And like, you know, like this year, there's whatever, seven of them or something. Yeah, that's so, intense. Uh, and you, there's got to be some limitations on you physically. Well, and... yeah, I, mean, I, I don't know that I'll get this done. I mean, I mean, the hope <laughs> is that, I mean, somebody may may get screwed in this deal in the end. I mean, I'm hoping I can make this work. Uh, and uh, I, I think I can. But like, th if there's a limit, this is it. I mean, this is the absolute stretch like this is the busiest i've ever been in my whole life i've never actually pulled this off so we'll see <laughs> well, i mean i mean it may kill me i could be dead by the end of the month so. <laughs> well at least we're getting the information now yeah yeah you get, you get it for the record before i broke <laughs> um well maybe we could jump back a little bit oh did we lose you no i think okay. i'm still there i see it that's just another call okay. coming in yeah. um Let's jump back a little bit. You uh, you mentioned growing up in the Midwest in uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Yeah, um, north side of Milwaukee, right in the shadow of a big factory, A.O. Smith, where my dad worked, a big uh, auto plant. And I've been looking back on a lot, you know, with so much like stuff coming out of Detroit now, art wise, and uh, looking at sort of how uh, that time period has sort of shaped what it looks like now, like the the big transition. I'm sure it's interesting to look back on those the that time period for you and be able to see the sort of spectrum of of an area. Um I've never been to Milwaukee and you mentioned like how when we talk about journeyman uh you know, I even being in San Diego, it seems like being south of Los Angeles just 2 hours is yeah. enough to You could to, be in Milwaukee. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. San Diego is—it's a nicer version of Milwaukee. I mean, it's bigger, <laughs> and the weather's great, but uh, and it's expensive. But you know, it's—it's it's as out of it as Milwaukee in some ways, as far as LA is concerned. Yeah. So your dad worked in the factory. Did you have stay-at-home mom? Stay-at-home mom. Yeah, uh, uh, Italian mom stayed at home my uh, my whole life. I mean, she she got a job after I left home briefly. But yeah, classic stay-at-home mom. I mean, she was working when they met and uh, quit her job when they got married and uh, maybe worked for a little while and then, you know, had five kids and just stayed at home the whole time. So yeah, yeah, it was a pretty conventional sort of working class family, working class neighborhood. I mean, there was a lot that went on there. The whole white flight thing happened in Milwaukee. We were in the middle of what later became like probably one of Milwaukee's worst crack ghettos later. Uh, and I lived there through that whole period. Um, but yeah, I really watched uh, that change happen—the way the city changed uh, from being, you know, sort of a successful post-war, you know, baby boom uh, 
you know, kind of prosperous industrial city into, uh, you know, it was always super segregated, but, um, and then I kind of watched it kind of fall apart and then come back. I grew up while it was falling apart. The seventies were probably the worst of it. Uh, and then by the eighties, of course, it was, uh, like a hundred percent crack ghetto that named my old neighborhood. Well, that's a, still is. It almost seems like there's a direct correlation. And I know like maybe economists would say not to connect random things, but it seems like cocaine played a very major role in a sort of degradation of society uh, over that 20-year span. Yeah, and it was everywhere. I mean, I remember, especially by the time the 80s rolled around, that was the drug of choice in the art world, too, of course. So, like, I can still remember my uh, studio mate, like, uh, she she was super wiry anyway. We had this big studio for nothing. I paid $75 a month for a 1,000 square feet with heat and electricity included, and she had the rest of this, like, 5,000 square foot loft. And she lived there. And uh, she was, uh, I think she had that perpetual motion syndrome because she had a <laughs> trampoline next to her phone and she would jump on the trampoline while she talked on the phone. But I'll never forget this image of her. She had all these like lines of Coke on the table next to her phone and she was jumping on the trampoline and then she would like leap off and snort a line and then get back <laughs> to the trampoline while she was talking. It's like, oh, Christ almighty. So you know, at good. this point I was like having children. I was done with all that. But Yeah. That's yeah, it was a crazy time. Um, did you have some uh, early influence, you know, from your family? Where the, was there something that uh, perpetuated you towards an art career? Yeah, I mean, everybody in my family made art. Um, the funny thing is, is maybe the whole working class thing. Like, I knew what it meant to like draw and make paintings, like everybody did. I had a kind of schizophrenic aunt who drew and painted. My grandmother painted. My grandfather drew. My dad drew cartoons. My mom could draw. Uh, there was a lot of it. I grew up in a house filled with original artwork, you know, mostly pretty lame, but still original artwork. Yeah. And uh, so I knew what that was all about. But I never I I didn't even know Milwaukee had an art museum until I accidentally stumbled on it. I like at 15, I rode was riding down to Milwaukee's lakefront on my bicycle. And I'm like, eh, what's this place? You know, I looked in the window and, and at the time it was like this huge. Lakefront, there's this, it, the museum is uh, an Earl Serenan building. So it's this kind of big, severe concrete structure with a huge open gallery, big wall windows facing the lake and nothing in it, right? Well, there were, there were like, there was like a Donald Judd and a couple other things. And I think somehow vaguely I was like, what's going on in there? You know, so <laughs> yeah. I, I went in and figured it out. And I really, you know, that was my big discovery. My parents, I think had no clue that, you know, they didn't even know what, that there were such things as art museums. So, uh, so that was sort of an accident that I stumbled into the art museum. Um, and then in fact, I had planned on being an auto mechanic. I went to a tech a trade and tech school for high school and trained to be an auto mechanic and actually had a job working at a break and alignment joint on the West side of Milwaukee. And, you know, I'd always liked working on cars as a kid and motorcycles and, um, but then I got this job my senior year in high school, and half the day I went to work at this job, and I realized I hated it. I hated, like, doing it, you know, like in the shop at school or at home. If something didn't work, you'd be like, ah, screw it. Let's go, you know, let's go have a beer, and we'll come back to it tomorrow. Yeah. Well, when Mr. Jones is waiting for his car, you don't have that luxury. So it really got bad and, you know, really got old fast. I kind of hated it. Yeah. And uh, – uh, so I went to my guidance counselor January of my senior year in high school and I said, man, I can't do this. I said, I hate this. 
I've got to, I think I need to go to college or something. And he said, uh, well, what do you like to do? And I said, or what are you interested in? I said, I don't know. He said, what do you like to do? I said, I like to draw and paint. And he said, well, you, you can go to school. Why don't you go to school? For, I said, you can go to school for that? Like, I had no clue that there was, like, art classes or anything. So yeah. so I signed up, like, in a panic and just barely got in and, uh, and you know, just went to the University of Wisconsin at Milwaukee, that sort of branch that's there, just by, you know, again, at the last second decided this is better than being a mechanic. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, and then never turned back. So really got involved in art history, crammed a lot, an awful lot into those four years. And became really aware of the Chicago art scene. And I was like, you know, I had spent most of my life like being interested in making things, but having no clue about like the wider world of art. And yeah. so like I was on this crash course to try to figure out as much as possible. And that's something interesting that I was thinking about today was, um, you know, with, with modern technology, I was thinking about how boredom played a very intrinsic role in my own creativity. Oh, and yeah. So I assume it plays a very intrinsic role in everybody else's creativity in that it's like a sort of um, uh, a little fire under your ass to do something just to avoid that boredom. And I wonder now with technology and how we just sort of jump into our phones or Facebook or something, if some of that creativity that comes from just being bored as fuck is actually going to get lost on these on future generations who are – Serving yeah, their boredom can, in some other way. Yeah, they can constantly be, you know, I was worried about that when video games got really good. You know, like even, I even remember when Pong came out, you know, and I was like, damn, nobody's going to do anything anymore. <laughs> and they're just going to sit here playing Pong all day. Then, of course, after like seven hours of playing Pong once, I'm like, nah, this isn't going to yeah. like replace making art. But yeah, there's a, a lot more distractions today than there were when I was a kid. I mean, there was nothing to do. The, you know, the truth is those, if you're going to be distracted, there's lots of stuff that will distract you. Like, for instance, when I was a kid, I was always making art, but I wasn't super productive. I just made it when I was bored, right? Yeah. Because the rest of the time, I was, like, committing crimes. Like, I was, <laughs> like, you know, there were other things to do. So, like, I was, uh, you know, there are different, like, some kids become jocks. Like, I was sort of a criminal because, you know, you do anything to keep from being bored. And I really, I, all the bad stuff I did as a teenager was purely out of boredom. Yeah. Had I been like channeled into football or something, I'm sure I would have been doing that instead of committing crimes. So, uh, I mean, nothing terrible, but, uh, you know, kind of typical teenage vandalism and thievery. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, um, yeah, so, I mean, you know, like the, the video games and the phone and social media gets old pretty fast. Besides, it's one of those primal impulses, I think. Now, listen, there's different ways of making and understanding and thinking about art, but that really basic way, like, things that you do that I do, like making things with your hands, you know, being a painter or a drawer, that's as primal as taking a dump. I mean, you can't, <laughs> uh, you can't stop that. Like no video game, no phone is going to be a substitute for that impulse to like futz around and make things with your hand. That kind of magic can't be replaced digitally. It just can't. I mean, even, even drawing on the computer is not going to be an adequate substitute for most of those people. I mean, that's like as old as human you know, kind of, you know, Elizabeth Murray, there's this great interview with her. I saw this real early on in my career. It was back in the late 70s, I think. There was, a, I think it was a film called 10 or 14 Americans. Anyway, it was, somebody had done this film where they visited these New York artists in their studio, studios. Elizabeth Murray was one of them. And she was painting at a time when painting was really out of fashion. Like conceptual art was really big at that point. Mm -hmm. 
And the interviewer said to her, you know, how do you feel like as a young artist, she was a young artist at the time, making paintings, these big paintings, at a time when everybody agrees painting is dead. And she said, uh, huh, painting's dead. That's interesting. You know, considering that people have been making paintings for, I don't know, 100,000 years, I don't imagine it's going to die anytime soon. I mean, that's really the truth of it is that people will always have the itch to do that. I mean, it's never been a lot of people. It's always been a pretty small minority. You know, what I always tell my students is like, we're special, right? We're, I always <laughs> tell them we're better than everybody else. Not to say that artists can't be incredible douchebags. Oh, they can. They can. <laughs> but, yeah, of course they can. But we're still special and in some ways better than everybody else because of what we do and how we're sort of sensitized to how we understand the world. Um, so I, and I really actually believe that. Uh, of course, I'm a painter, so I'm very partial. Like <laughs> I, I think of other painters and drawers as being we're all part of the same sort of tribe. So I cut them a lot of slack in terms of their personal behavior, but uh, you know because we're sort of committed to this like special activity. It's like you know the priesthood. You know, there's this kind of bond that we share. Yeah, so. I, and I agree too. In in that that um, compulsion as well. Like it's got to a point for me personally, and I assume for everybody else. Uh, uh, this and you hear people say it a lot, and it sounds almost cliche, but like a need to make things. Oh yeah, and it really is like I. You know, I don't think I suffer from uh, any type of real anxiety issues like people who really suffer from them. But I, there is like a sense a of bit, tension. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. If I don't get in the studio for three days running, I get a real edge on me. And uh, I, my, I become more anxious and I turn into an asshole. My family, I don't know if like, like I wonder, like, did I build that in as sort of a defense mechanism or what? But like when my kids were at home, uh, they're both more or less moved out now, but uh, I know like if for whatever reason I was busy with something I hadn't gotten in the studio or we were traveling or something after a few days, they would all start to say, dad, you need to get in the studio. <laughs> like they could tell, like I was getting grouchy and being shitty to people. And it's definitely sort of, you know, it's like my happy place that I need to get to it is there's like an addiction. I need to sort of scratch that itch. If I don't do it, I'm not going to be happy. I mean, it is the thing that saves me for sure. I mean, it's definitely like a physical need. Yeah, yeah, and you could feel it too. Oh yeah, you know and- that's just a fact. That's not me making it up. That's not romance. Yeah, that's just yeah. reality. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I wish I didn't feel like that because it makes it hard to really do anything. Like I won't go anywhere, uh, like for a vacation, for more than like five days because that's like my limit not to like actually be in my studio. I can bring a sketchbook along, but that's not the same. Yeah, it's not the you same. Know? Yeah. There's something about getting into that like four, five hour, six yeah, hour period right. where things start to happen. Yeah, yeah. I've got to be in the zone. You've got to be in that timeless p- place. Or, and, you know, I sort of exist in Fredland in my head all the time anyway, yeah. which makes it difficult to really do other things. Like, so, like, even if I go on a long trip, half the time I'm not even there. So, it's the, so, like, when I do sort of come out of it, I'm like at dinner with friends at night and I wake up, it's like, you know, I'm paying a lot of money to like travel and do all this stuff. And I'm not here anyway. Why <laughs> yeah. am I doing this? You know, I just as soon be back in my studio, like just, you know, whiling away the time, like twiddling my thumbs, watching paint dry. Do I mean, it's kind of old. It's kind of awful, like way to live. But yeah, it seems like, but it, that's the double edged sword, right? Like it's, it, and it's almost like a, some, like the feeling for me personally, it's sometimes like a grass is greener on the other side when I'm not painting all I want to be doing is painting. But sometimes yeah. when I'm in like starting something or like trying to figure out or I'm at a problem spot, 
even though that's like the fun of it, it still feels miserable while doing it. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh, I never said painting or the process is pleasurable. <laughs> it's, it's fucking agony for me. Yeah. The, the pleasure is the finished product, right? Like the process itself is fucking grueling. I mean, I in some ways there are times when I'm drawing where it's just pure pleasure, but rarely. Mostly, you know, there's there's pleasure in the sort of discovery sometimes, but the actual physicality of it is like. It's just sucks. It's kind of just sucks. It's just constant problem solving, constantly correcting mistakes. It's not, you know, like I saw this video of de Kooning when he was completely demented. Uh, he was like in 85 or whatever, and he was advanced Alzheimer's or something. Yeah. And they would still drag his ass down and put him in front of the canvas, right? They'd set up these canvases, put all the paint out. And, he's, and he does, starts this kind of beautiful dance, right? With the paint, like his muscle memory just carried him through. Like, like there are people who can paint like that. And that looked like really pleasurable, you know, yeah. like he just looked like he was having a great time. But that's not, that's not me. I'm one, I'm one of those guys who's in there like noodling around and struggling and correcting and erasing and thinking, how to, like, yeah. you know, I like obsess for hours over the shape of a jughead. You know, it's like, <laughs> how pointless is that, right? Like, but it's, it's, you know, it's important for me to get it right. I was uh, mentioning to my wife, I just finished this commission piece uh, for a buddy of mine where I painted all these, this group of friends, all his little octopus characters, all hanging out in like a little underwater scene. And I was adding one little tiny dot on like the forehead of this one octopus. And I had mentioned to my wife, I was like, nobody's ever going to really notice that this one little dot is here, but I am drawn. And like, if I don't do it, it's going to kill me. Yeah. 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 Well, it's not the end of the world, but yeah, there's, I know, but there's a lot of little wrinkles in my work that, you know, other artists pick up on it though. You know, there'll be times when other artists will walk in and go like, yeah, yeah, I see what you did there. You know, like <laughs> nobody else knows. Like some other artists might walk and say, Oh, look at that dot, man. That's pointless, but I know you had to do it. You know? so, <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 Artists will pick up on that. They're, again, they're sensitized to that kind of stuff. Yeah. And that, that's, what's kind of interesting. I think maybe that specialness that you were talking about, I feel, and not to be too mystical or whatever about, but I feel like uh, artists are forced into looking at just the nature around them, just the experience around them in ways that they could figure out how to break it down into a painting. So in essence, we we analyze and look differently than other people for sure. I mean, it's not scientific. It's just intuitive that we just understand the world differently because we're always processing all the visual information we take in as like possible, like uh, reference material. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. How would I use that? Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, that's, again, that, 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 I don't think it's mystical or anything. That's just a fact of how we operate. It's part of what we do. So, I mean, do you- like nobody thinks like a basketball player, if he's gauging like how far he can leap from the dunk a basketball, like that's not mystical. That's just him figuring out the physics of his game. Right. It's basically what we do. We just happen to do it with our eyes a lot of the time. Do you think you know? that's something that's intrinsic to a person, like from birth? Like that's the type of person that they're going to be, or do you think that's more of a learned behavior? Like yeah, it's, it's probably a combination. You know, some of it's uh, nurture, but you know, I grew up in a family of five kids. Four of us could draw. I'm the only one who. You know, as I say, I'm like, was too stupid to do anything else. Uh, I just, uh, I was the one that got bit. You know, I was the one with the disease, as I call it. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, it's not, uh, I mean, I don't think anybody chooses to be an artist because they think, 
this is a really good idea. You know, (laughs) (laughs) nobody would do that. Nobody would choose to be an artist because like, okay, I have these options. You know, I could be a computer scientist. I could be an engineer. I could be a lawyer or an artist. Artists are smart. I'll do that. No, no, they don't do that. They they don't have a choice. You know, again, I know this, this is corny to compare it to the priesthood, but it's like, (laughs) you know, like, but the truth is it's like a vocation. You don't do it. You don't really have that much of a choice. You could choose not to do it. And right. then you just be miserable, right? Like a lot of people. A lot of people choose not to do what they're meant to do. So, you know, I, you know, artists, a lot of my students are always worried about money, right? They're like, oh, man, how am I going to make money? I don't know. Get a job. You know, do anything. doesn't matter. You know, work at Starbucks. You know, work at a bookstore. Be a security guard. Whatever. That's just money. Money isn't meaning. Do whatever you need. The truth is, is you've got something better than money. You know what you are here for. You know what you're on the planet for. You know why... You know, you know what you're supposed to be doing, right? And that has nothing to do with money. Money can come from it if you're lucky, but it doesn't matter if it does or not. The point is, is that's why you're here. That's the meaning of your life is processing, you know, your world and your understanding, the way you communicate through this visual filter, right? Uh Uh, I know a lot of people are hugely successful financially, like, you know, millionaires who at 55 or 60 say, you know, I still don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. And that's just fucking sad. Yeah. Like I've, I haven't had to think that since I was whatever, since that day when I went into my guidance counselor's office and said, I don't want to be a mechanic. Like, <laughs> that's when I realized what I want to do is just play all day. So Yeah, and I think that's another one of those prerequisites. Like the idea that you uh, hold your time valuable and that the yeah. way that you spend it is uh, up to you, you know, at least 90% of the, the time, right? Because, of course, yeah. there's other things, you know, family and other people that. Um, oh, take, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know. yeah, I, I mean, I love my family and I try to be a good son and a good husband and as good a father as I can be. But uh, the truth is, is uh, I can't do any of that without spending the majority of my time making my artwork. I was just taught and it's getting worse. You have this to look forward to. It gets worse <laughs> as you get older. Fantastic. I was just saying to somebody recently that because uh, it was the holidays, right? And I was talking to one of my buddies, an artist, and he's like, oh, man, how you doing? And he's a few years older than me, and he was always getting depressed at the holidays the last few years. And I didn't understand it. And then I realized it's starting to happen to me that, like, family comes back home, right? And they're all talking and visiting. And, and I always feel like I've got the bends when I come in. I feel like I've just come up from deep underwater, like, too fast. You know, like, yeah. I come in from a day in the studio, and they're all talking. I don't know what the hell is going on. If I say something, they all look at me like I'm insane, like I'm obviously not saying the right stuff. Yeah. And, and I'm just, like, not fitting in. And... And, and and in some ways, I just want to turn around and go back underwater. You know, I want to just disappear into that again. So, yeah, it gets kind of – it gets harder. Like the longer you do it, the in some ways, the more sort of hermetic the activity becomes. But Yeah. Uh, I, but uh, I, so I, I force myself to come out and blabber on it. But I mostly – you know, I mostly hang out with other artists. Like, right. Like because we – like, you know, we speak the same language, right? right? So it's easy for me to hang out with artists. Like if I were having this conversation with one of my kids, they'd be like, "Oh Jesus, what a bunch of indulgent bullshit!" You yeah, know, like yeah. a break. And that's what so, everybody who listens to the show is just artists who are sitting in their studio, so they're like, "Yeah, I get it." Yeah, I get it. Right, exactly. <laughs> it's like um, preaching to the choir. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> makes it makes my job way easier. Yeah, yeah. Um, maybe we could talk about your work a little bit um, for maybe people who aren't familiar with your stuff. Um, I you you do uh, a lot of figurative work. Um, I wrote down 
I, you know, the first thing that came to mind, um, I get this sense of you creating your own sort of freak show. You know, I still remember when there was the freak show at the State Fair in Milwaukee or in West Dallas outside of Milwaukee. I went to that as a kid, like the real freak show with the real sideshow banners, the sideshow. Yeah. Which it was an art form kid. in and of itself, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's performance. I think that's like, I think a lot of contemporary performance artists could learn a lot from what happened at, in the sideshow. Uh, but, you know, when I was a kid, I can still vividly remember as a kid, a lot of the, the sort of come-ons, you know, the Barker would be out there and they'd be out there with like a girl in a bikini, right? And one of the, it would be like, oh, you know, the human contortionist, you know, you know, like, you know, you prepare yourself because she must be completely disrobed for this, you know, so of course you're like paying your dollar to go in there and see some naked babe, you know, uh-huh. who's probably a heroin addict, you know, <laughs> junkie. Uh, and then of course you get in there and she hasn't taken anything off, but, uh, every year they would get me with that. You know? <laughs> but, uh, uh, yeah, I saw Spidora and I saw the turtle boy when I was a kid. And, um, uh, you know, of course there were multiple different tattooed men. I saw sword swallowers. I saw Johnny Mia when I was a kid. Um, yeah. So, and I, and I've owned sideshow banners in the past. I don't own any currently. I sold my last one recently. Uh, I sort of absorbed that. I have the books. You know, Carl yeah. Hammer uh, in Chicago had a, has still a huge collection of them, and he sold a bunch of them over the years. And I, I started showing with Carl, I don't know, I guess in the early 90s, and, and he produced a book. And then Ed Hardy, who's a friend of mine, produced uh, one of the other books that um, – now, which one's which? I think Ed Hardy did Freaks, Geeks, and Strange Girls about sideshow banners. Uh-huh. And then Carl did another one. Or they came out right around the same time. So I find um, it interesting um... – and I'm going to use the term lowbrow in air quotes just so that it's something descriptive to sort of bundle a bunch of people together. I, I feel like that, you know, I guess it comes sort of within that car culture. Um, yeah, hot rod culture, a tattoo culture, the sideshow, you know, all the sort of vernacular, uh, like American vernacular art forms. I mean, lowbrow kind of goes along. With all that, and I grew up with all that. You know, I grew up in this neighborhood that was full of factory workers and veterans and bikers. So tattoos were a big thing. Yeah. Uh, I saw them everywhere. It was one of the visual art forms I understood from a very early age. Uh, and then, of course, like motorcycles and hot rods and being a young kid mechanic and loving all that. And, and the comics, you know, basically all these vernacular forms of art making uh, that were not high art. I, mean, I didn't even discover the the concept of high art until I found the art museum at 15. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, and I don't turn my nose up at that. Like, I'm a huge fan of, like, like I became really versed in art history. I, I took a lot of art history as a student and uh, still love, like, like, museums are some of my favorite places to hang out. So, and I, I think most of the guys who are currently considered lowbrow, they... They dig art of sort of every stripe. They're not yeah, sure snobs about it. But I, I feel like at you know early '90s, mid '90s, there was around the time that I started seeing your work, uh, there was a sort of a cohesion. And I don't yeah. even, I don't even think that your work looks like it necessarily even fits into that genre per se as a as a generality. Yeah, it's, a little, it's a little on the borders of it. I think it's some of the yeah. same some of the same image bank. But the treatment is very different. Like well, I, that's what I'm. That's what I'm sort of leaning towards is the sort of the um, the processes and the, the sort of uh, final looks of your work. 
I think I really like the the dirtiness, which yeah, interestingly sure. enough, we you mentioned uh, the priests earlier. I, I get a real sense of um, like uh, Russian icon paintings, and yeah, yeah. and not necessarily the imagery, but the sort of patina, the sort of what no, looks like, like there've been candles burning under it for five hundred years. Yeah, and then passed from generation to generation. There's sort of a history to the surfaces that yeah. even. The, the imagery seems both old and new at the same time, like a new right, thing. But the, exactly but, what I'm after. It had the as the, as I always put it, the sort of, it has the stink of history about it. It's got <laughs> that kind of, but it's clearly a new thing at the same time. Like, I mean, a lot of people, like I've had people say, "Oh, why are you trying to make them look old?" It's like I'm not really trying to make them look old. I'm trying to have them evoke like this kind of embedded history. More than I'm not trying to fool anybody that these are actually antique. Yeah, I just love that vibe of like, you know, like you can get lost in that. It's like it's like a, it's sort of like historical fiction in a way. You know, uh-huh. it's like it's fiction. Clearly, this is an actual history, but I, I give it enough of that stink of history that it's believable. You can you can sort of suspend your disbelief and kind of get lost in this alternate sort of world where like it's a history that never happened except in my own imagination yeah back there existing in uh fredland yeah back in fredland exactly <laughs> yeah. it's like completely cooked up in my head it really i mean in some ways like a friend of mine i bought this thing one time just a piece of folk art and, like the next week it was in a painting and this friend of mine was like how the hell do you do that like you're you you're able to like assimilate shit from the world so rapidly into your work i can't do that i have to live with something for a year before i can even think about it i'm like i don't yeah. know man i just i've always had this impulse to uh you know like the things i love like they they just all go into that that oh i think i think i have a call coming in here i don't know what's going on here oh wait let me cancel this hang on there's a scan no no wait scan later i don't know what this is all about Crap, it won't let me. Uh, there we go. Okay. So I don't know why this is doing this weird thing, but yeah, there's like a double screen here. But I'm just going to move this out of the way. Okay. Sorry, I think it's because another call was Yeah, yeah, in. no worries. Skypex yeah. all super. You, you, sounds it's good over here. Something weird. Like you're in two screens now for some reason, two windows. But um, anyway, what was I saying? Oh, that I'm always trying to cram everything I love into the process always, you know. Uh, and, and it kind of started as a way for me to uh, make my own version of things that I couldn't own. But now even if I own it, it's like just the way I, you know, it's like I steal the things from the world and just jam them and run them through my own filter. And then they appear in, you know, in Fredland in my own personal universe. They make yeah. their way in that way. Well, that uh, might be a good segue into, you know, I, I see a lot of your figures seem to be um, human hybrids. Uh, animal hybrids, things that are sort of uh, multiple things put together. And, and I was curious, you know, I know we're constantly gathering uh, imagery data for for f- future work like we talked about. Um, I'm curious if in your process does it come out as a sort of spontaneous act? Like do the things sort of form themselves in your head on their own? Or is it a, like a process where you're like, oh, I, you know, like I, I doodled this thing and I doodled this other thing. Uh, what happens if I make a drawing with the two things together? Is it a staged out process or is it a little bit more um, spontaneous? Well, it's sort of a combination. I mean, the thing, you know, the thing is, is these things all sort of exist in my, that image bank in my head. They're like hybrid creatures. I mean, they're as old as the Greek myths, right? I mean, they've been around. Like I like was drawn to that as a kid, the idea of like centaurs and 
these, uh, you know, things that are combined, you know, human animal hybrids. Yeah. That's, that's been around forever. It's all over to sort of medieval bestiaries and things that I'd looked at. So like, I was always drawn to that sort of imagery anyway. It's like, you know, it was surreal before I knew what surreal meant, yeah. you know. Even um, within other religions, you know, like even modern religions, you, you find Yeah, it. right. You'll find that kind of imagery. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, there's something sort of timeless and archetypal about that. So I don't really, I don't really think about that so much. But when I'm combining images in my head, um, like they're all there all the time, right? All these different figures, all these different kind of characters. But there's times when I'm tinkering where I'll think, you know, I'll, I'll start, but it's very intuitive the way like, I'll start a painting thinking, oh, this is going to be just a dude, right? Sort of a self-portrait dude. And then it'll just grow a snout like halfway through. I'll think, uh -huh. I'm just not feeling the love with the shape of this head. And so I'll just change it. But some of it's just like for entertainment's sake. And then, you know, see where it happens. There's sort of an organic kind of creation that happens every uh -huh. time I sit down. And I'm always open to it changing dramatically. Like, so the original intention or even the decision to like, oh, what if I stuck this head on here, or like, you know, for instance, I might say, oh, I wanted to have these sort of like donkey ears, right? And then it sort of turns into a bat, you know, like, so I don't, I just try to open myself up to the process and see what happens. I mean, you know, sometimes they're fucking failures, but, uh, sure. but uh, yeah, I mean, I, it, it's like a, com so it's a combination. It's the things I know, the things I love, uh, the things I've done, like my own history, I'm trying to create a new thing that's essentially still like, a variation on this constant lifelong motif, right. Of like tinkering with these characters and portraits and situations that they're in. Uh, and also trying to load them up as cycle, you know, psychologically load them much up as much as I can without them really doing much. You know, my figures are all just kind of sitting there and not doing a whole hell of a lot. So like <laughs> how much can you cram in to like a static portrait or like, you know, or just a figure barely doing anything. Yeah. They're not like big epic battle scenes or anything. I mean, it's just, Figures kind of sitting around. Sometimes they're sort of running. Most of you're just kind of standing around. They yeah. don't do a whole lot. And that's something I sort of wanted to talk to you about too. You know, like I, I, I like your use of um, words in your paintings, and I sort of look at it as this, like a um, maybe a metaphorical poetry, or even I see some of the stuff as distractionary, almost like you're trying to distract the viewers. Uh, perception of what's going on yeah we well, have to dig a little better i don't want it to be too obvious you know my my text in the work almost never it almost always relates on a tangent to the image like it's never a cap almost never is it a caption like never would there be like an owl and then it would say something about an owl or yeah, even about yeah. flying right i mean it's much you know it's sort of like it's one of those things i remember from art history that famous magritte painting uh you know like um that I forget how to say it in French, but basically the translation, it's a painting of a pipe, right? Mm -hmm. And then the saying underneath it says, this is not a pipe. Well, our historians have kind of interpreted that to mean, well, no, of course it's not a pipe. It's a painting of a pipe. But I think Magritte meant to say, this is not a pipe. This is like a fucking magical dream horse or something. You know, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. He didn't mean this is a painting of a pipe. He wasn't that conceptual. He was a surrealist. And he was mean to say, this pipe is standing in for my dick or, I don't know, some other thing, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, it's, like it's a metaphor in a way. So, I mean, I'm always thinking about that when I use text. Like, uh -huh. So, like, the text Even with says portraiture. One, yeah, even the portraiture. Right, exactly. I mean... And I'm always trying to like slant it off. And, and I do think that there's a, a fair amount of uh, poetry involved. I'm, I mean, I am sort of a frustrated writer. I've written a lot 
and I and I actually almost became a creative writing major uh, for a little bit. Uh, but I just again, I just like making things too much. So I kind of again, I kind of jammed it in a little bit of sort of poetry uh-huh. with uh, with the painting. I can't stop. You know, I don't always use it, but probably 75, 80% of the time there's some kind of text or words in the work. It's funny you bring that up because I've been thinking about this sort of idea a lot. And I, I have used like – I would use like a single word sometimes or like a, like three words or something. And a lot of times it comes down for me that I feel like because – and it like the pipe thing, like – I made this portrait that has to do with some other set of things that nobody's ever going to understand. And, you know, I'll use the title sometimes to try to get people right, on. Give them a little hint. Uh-huh. Yeah. Get them on the tracks at least and let them run on their own. And I've been thinking a lot like in terms of um, like cinematography. Like I wrote a short film um, just to do it. Uh, yeah. and, and thinking I of, think about that a lot about film, like what's possible with that. But and I don't have time to do it, but I love the idea of it. It's great. Right? I, and yeah. I feel like that being able to add words to artwork in the context in which you're using it, I feel like there's a similar context. Like it gives you a sort of, it's almost like it gives you a, the few frames before or the few frames behind right. that scene. It yeah. gives you a little context in which to even make up your own story. Story, right. It gives you a little window into the narrative. It's just, it kind of helps to flesh out, you know, paintings can never really be much more than a, a near, if they're narrative, a narrative like moment, right? They're right. never the whole narrative. They're like a, a, a second or a few seconds, or maybe they're a minute from a bigger narrative. They're, 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 they're trapped in this little bit of time that the painting takes to understand. Right. Yeah. So I feel like sometimes adding the text extends that, like you said, it could be a few frames before it's setting you up to sort of expand your understanding of the narrative so that when you walk away, you know, your mind might be spinning a little bit. You're like, what the hell does that mean? So so because one of the ways we're hardwired to understand and to communicate is through writing, right? So when we see language, we immediately start trying to make logical sort of <laughs> yeah. conclusions, draw logical conclusions from that language. So if you combine language with an image, people are trying they, – they, that it's like this automatic extra thing you get when you do that where people are trying to find the meaning between those. They're trying to finish that puzzle. It's just like providing an extra dot on the connected dots or an extra few dots to help them fill that, that puzzle out, you know, to, to, to kind of find that more complete narrative or more complete image or more complete expression. It's just a little extra information. And, you know, plus it, the people do this weird thing when they're standing in front of – a painting with text, they'll like, you'll see them like saying it, you know, like reading it or like moving their <laughs> lips, which I think is kind of a cool thing. And I, I feel like it just slows the process down a little bit and complicates uh-huh. it enough. I mean, it, it can be done poorly. I'm not saying I always do it so well, but uh, I just, I can't not do it. I mean, I've tried not to do it. It's just an important part of the way I communicate now. Yeah. And I feel like it fits with the work. I, I've seen when it seems like uh, some artists are even in my own work where it's like clearly clashing with whatever the imagery is just aesthetically, you yeah, know, yeah. like to fit something in aesthetically as opposed to like what the message is sometimes. Right. Yeah, um, I mean, I'm still always tinkering with like how much like physical space it should occupy in the painting. You know, like yeah. I go back sometimes and think, Oh man, that was like way too big. 
Like, I need to, like, tone that down. So, like, I think I'm in a kind of sweet spot right now with some of the newest work. But, you know, I could change my mind next year. Who knows? Yeah. I don't even sign the front of paintings usually. I don't either. They yeah. go in the back. I got yeah. humiliated once in a critique my freshman year in school where the professor – and it was an abstract painting. The professor said, and what's that? I said, well, that's my signature. And he goes, and what does that have to do with the painting? And I was like, Ugh. I just felt like a dumbass. I turned around and everybody's like – staring at me like I was a fucking idiot. And then, you know, I was like, hey, Picasso signs on the front. It's like, yeah, but he's fucking Picasso. He can do, <laughs> yeah. he can do whatever he wants. Yeah, you know? sure. Well, you have a show coming up. Um, this uh, the this podcast will be up next week, so the show will be this week um, in future time uh, yeah. at Copland next, Del Rio. Next, a week from – it opens a week from tomorrow at Copland Del Rio. And that's in Los Angeles? Yeah, in Culver City on Washington Boulevard or whatever it is, yeah. Yeah. Nice. I don't have the address handy off the top of my head, but it's there with all the other galleries. Yeah, it's a nice fantastic. Gallery. We're going to try to get up for the show um, if uh, time permits for us here at the podcast. Um, right, it'd be great to see you guys there. Yeah, for sure. I think it's a good show. It's all, it's, again, it's all portraits. I don't know if you've uh, seen it or – well, I've been posting it on Facebook, so you must have seen some of it. Yeah, I've definitely uh, seen some of the work. Yeah, uh, but yeah, I think it'll be a cool show. It's all yeah. smaller work this time. Last time I did a bunch of big stuff, but uh, – I just wanted – I've been wanting to do this show just like straight up portraits and actually there's something new. Not absolutely new. I've done it in the past, but I've got these altered photos in the show also, which is uh, something – I was going to do a series of painted portraits and then a series of portrait drawings to go along with it, kind right. of framed nicely. But uh, somehow – I don't even know how it happened. I just one day realized I had just made like 10 of these really goofy altered photographs. I had these vintage photos that I was dicking around with. and. Uh -huh. They ended up making a lot more sense with with the painted portraits, so they fit really well. So, so that's what went. Yeah, all that stuff. I mean, you don't really beautiful. get more than a slice of the process anyway. That's what you get when you do a show. So, what? Uh, why is painting portraiture so great? Well, you know, people ask that question a lot because they do it so often, and I, and I never get tired of it. And I think it's that uh, it's like that monkey thing. You know, it's like how do you wreck? You know, like I never get tired of just like. The sh you know, just shift of the set of the eyes or like the subtle change in the size of an ear, or the shape of a head. It's like, it just, I don't know. It doesn't get old for me. It's like, it's, it's about like facial recognition in a way, you know, like yeah. how do you just shift things slightly to make a completely different thing? You know, it's like just these few variables, but uh, you move them around a little, it's like endless. It's like a phone number, you know, you can just keep moving parts around. And in some of these, I've moved some parts around pretty dramatically, but they're still <laughs> just portraits. Yeah. So, uh, and that's the other thing is we know what that is. You know, like it's one of those things like I really like is when somebody can approach a painting and like even from across the room, they'll be like, oh, there's this a little portrait. And so they want to get up close to, you know, and it's again, the human like, oh, there's another monkey. You know, I'm going to go like, <laughs> yeah. stare that monkey in the eye and communicate. It's how we communicate. If you think about, like, yeah, we have body language, but 90% of how we communicate is wrapped up in our head, yeah. in our vision, our taste, our smell, our language, and all how we hear. It's all, like, up there, and you're up in the portrait somehow. Yeah. So it's a powerful thing, I think. I agree 100%. I just wanted to hear somebody else say it. Yeah, I think it's true. Anyway, <laughs> I'm sticking with that story. That's what I tell my students. Sounds good so, to me. You know, like, a lot of times, a lot of students are doing portraits, like, oh, let's keep doing portraits. I don't know what to tell students. I'm like, you know... When you've made a thousand portraits, maybe you can sort of think, maybe I should do something else. But if you're, you know, it, it should, you should be able to invest a portrait with like anything that's going on in your life at any given point. Yeah. You know, like that's a challenge maybe, but 
it's a worthwhile challenge, I think. Yeah. All right, that's a good spot, Fred. I uh, I want to thank you again for uh, for taking the time. I know you're, you're obviously super busy, so uh, so thank you for for chatting with us. Yeah, anytime. Um, Come back sometime. I got lots more to say. Yeah, <laughs> sure, sure. You're welcome anytime. Uh, where can people find your work at online? Um, uh, well, my website needs to be updated badly, but you can see well, you know, on Instagram at fstony1960 and on Facebook, same thing. Um, it's you can see like I post almost every day, uh, and then uh, my website is fredstonehouseart.com. Uh, you can see it there. Uh, that's I'm a little pokier about updating that, but Instagram the new stuff goes up constantly. Nice. All right, let's do internet dap, and uh, we'll let you get back to painting because we know you got a lot right. to do. Thank you, sir. Hope to see you in L.A. Let's do knuckles. All right. Boom. All right, brother. Take care. Right, Thank you ya. again. Yeah, yeah, it was fun. All right, later. All right, so that was my chat with Fred, rad guy. I feel like I was sort of looking um, into the future a little bit. We seem to be um, quite similar. Uh, as always, uh, make sure you go check out MikeMaxwellArt.com. You can click on the podcast and get all the other episodes. You can follow the podcast on Twitter and Facebook and social media. Actually, I don't have an Instagram for the podcast, but um, you just follow Mike Maxwell Art for all that and at Live Free Podcast. Um, go follow Fred. We'll post the links up on all the social medias um, as well. And go follow Soho Design House, uh, sponsor for this episode again. Uh, thank you to them. Uh, go follow them at S-O-H-O-D-H on the Instagrams, and it's SohoDesignHouse.com. Uh, thanks, guys. We will. Um, I'm going to be recording another episode here today, hopefully, with Mr. Steve Caballero. Hopefully, I didn't just jinx it by saying it. I try not to say it too much anymore. Um, all right, guys. Thanks. Thanks.